This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In 1862, French novelist, poet, and dramatist Victor Hugo published what would become one of the best-selling novels of the 19th century. Les Miserables. Since its initial publication, the story has been translated into 21 different languages and adapted for countless films. In 1980, it was adapted into a musical that is still performed today, making it one of the longest-running musicals in the world. Over 150 years later, it's a story that still resonates with readers and audiences around the world. I mean, there is almost nothing in Les Miserables that you could object to now. And that's not true of any other 19th century novelist. Yeah? Um, uh, racial attitudes in many 19th century novelists that were seen like common sense then, but which offend us now. There's nothing of it. Les Miserables, there's nothing. There's no, there's no, there's no anti-Semitism. There's no racial um, aspersions or assumptions or even implications. Um, it is a novel about the whole world, but told through what Hugo knew, France. The story highlighted the unjust social class system of 19th century France by moving the underrepresented lives of the poor and miserable to center stage. But this wasn't something unique to France. It was, and still is, a global issue. Hugo knew this story had worldwide relevance, and he wanted it to be accessible to all readers. What is so heartening, enlivening, and profoundly important about Les Miserables is that it is written for everybody, but it is written without the slightest compromise uh, with Hugo's own conception of high art. And maybe it's the last work in our modern history that completely overrides the distinction between elite and popular culture. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor David Bellos to discuss Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. When Victor Hugo published this work in 1862, he was an enormous figure in French literature and European culture. He was so daunting that when Charles Dickens had a trip to Paris and went to have tea with him, he hardly dared say a word in the presence of this towering genius uh, who bore the mantle of Goethe, um, if not of Homer and Virgil, uh, with absolute naturalness. I mean, he was totally megalomaniac, except that it was entirely justified. <laughs> well, and when it appeared in 1862, Hugo um, had published a huge amount throughout his life, but he hadn't actually published a novel since 1831 and Notre Dame de Paris, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Hugo had been working on Les Miserables for many years, and it was highly anticipated by the public. It sold out in days, it was reprinted, it sold out in days, it was reprinted, etc. Um, Hugo's colleagues uh, amongst writers and publishers uh, in Paris um, were very miffed. I mean, he had bulldozed the entire book market. Um, Nothing was being sold in bookshops except Les Miserables. Um, 
to the degree, to the extent that uh, Flaubert delayed publication of his novel Salambou for nine months because his publisher told him there's no, no chance of selling any copies. That's not what people are spending their money on. So there was a kind of uh, snide resentment of this monster who sort of occupied the whole literary space. And that's why in the correspondence of Flaubert, in the letters that Baudelaire wrote to his mother, um, um, amongst subtle uh, but establishment writers, snide remarks about it being, you know, pat for the masses and um, uh, outrage and so forth. And then, of course, there were um, many writers who were politically uh, on the other side, of, very much on the other side of the line, a conservative reactionary monarchist um, who wrote diatribes against the novel. Um, one of the interesting things is that since it had absolutely no impact on the readership of the book or its integration into not merely French but European and broadly more global culture, um, you begin to wonder whether book critics matter at all. Help us put the book in the context of French publishing history. It was published in 1862, okay? Um, France was not yet a completely literate country, but it was well on its way to become. But many, many readers were new readers, you know, had just become literate. Um, so it comes as like the crowning glory of a period of great creativity in French literature, and American and British as well. I mean, after all, these are also the decades of George Eliot and Jane Austen and the Brontes, uh, Melville, Dickens. Uh, you know, when you think about it, it's extraordinary how much you had to read of wonderful new stuff. I mean, Great Expectations, 1861. Um, you know, Moby Dick, just a few years before. War and Peace, the first part appeared 1863. So Les Miserables comes out in the middle of a tremendous flowering of the art of the novel. Although this was a prosperous time for the novel, politically, things in France were more bleak. In 1851, Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew, Louis Napoleon, or Napoleon III, seized power in France and established an anti-parliament constitution. And Hugo was an undesirable. Uh, Hugo was becoming more and more opposed to Napoleon, more and more interested in and supportive of what we now call them left-wing positions. That they were called they were Republican and marginally socialist at the time. And so he, he went into exile just before he was declared to be persona non grata anyway. Hugo moved with his family to Brussels for a few months before settling on the island of Jersey, situated in the English Channel between France and England. Jersey is a self-governing democracy that is politically independent from the United Kingdom, but physically protected and defended by Britain. So he took up residence in Jersey. Uh, alongside quite a number of other French and European socialists, bohemians, exiles, political undesirables, and other riffraff. And so they formed a whole community um, and relations between the um, exile community and the locals got more and more strained. Secret agents from Paris were there um, stirring up the trouble. And the British found themselves now in alliance with the French over the uh, war in the Crimea. And so they joined in in stirring up troubles. 
Um, and in 1855, three years after his arrival on Jersey, finally uh, there was a, a beginning of a riot uh, which the local authorities used as an excuse for serving an expulsion order on, well, he wasn't the leader of them, but he was the single most respected, most symbolic figure amongst the exile community. Um, so he then did something even cleverer. Uh, next to De Jersey, in this sea of the English Channel, was another island that was a direct dependency of the British crown and similarly in semi-independent in the same way. And he took up residence on Guernsey in 1855 um, and remained there um, for many more years. And that's where he actually wrote or rather completed the writing and rewriting of Les Miserables. And that's not often realized that Les Miserables is a French novel written by a man who has France completely in his head, uh, but it's not written in France. What motivated Hugo to write this book? Um, he was a celebrated poet, um, writer, figure. Um, why write this monumental work that focuses on the miserables of France. The poor, the poor and the, the wretched, yes. Um, the idea of the book goes back long, long before 1862. In 1845, uh, Hugo was pretty much at the peak uh, of his life. Um, and anyway, he was in his 40s, handsome, married with children, uh, with a devoted mistress, um, the most famous author in the world already, living in a splendid apartment in uh, what's now Place des Vosges in Paris, uh, called Place Royale in those days, um, a member of the Academy, that's already elected to the position of being an immortal. Um, and then two things happened. Um, uh, first, the king, Louis-Philippe, elevated him to the peerage, um, made him a member of the upper chamber of the French legislature, rather like the, it was modelled on the British House of Lords, except that it wasn't hereditary. Uh, it was by nomination by the king. So, I don't know, there were a couple of hundred of them. It's the highest rank you could possibly have, short of being royal yourself. Point one. Point two, um, uh, Hugo had discovered the joys of sex some years before, um, and was uh, a fairly rampant philanderer. And in 1845, in April 1845, he got caught in bed with a lovely lady um, who had a very, very vindictive husband. Um, and at that time, adultery was illegal. It was punishable. Um, um, and Hugo pulled rank, uh, being a pair de France, a member of the upper chamber, he was immune to prosecution by the courts. He could only be tried by the chamber itself. Hugo was let off the hook, but the woman he was caught with was sentenced to a brief time in prison. So we know that the, the, uh, the, the, the beginning of this book dates from that conjunction of circumstances of Hugo's elevation and abasement, uh, uh, his um, position of guiltiness. People in the know um, joke that uh, because he'd um, sort of been caught in unsaintly behaviour, uh, he had to sort of um, redeem himself by 
writing about a saintly character. And the Les Miserables is a great compensation exercise. And there's an element of truth in that as motivation for when he started it. But it's not entirely adequate as an explanation. Um, Hugo's maiden speech to the Chambre des Pertes, to the, uh, the upper house of the legislature, was called De la Misère, yeah. about poverty. Um, somehow or other, in the middle of the 1840s, in the middle of this spectacular, meteoric, uh, stellar career, Victor Hugo, looking around, seeing the state of France, became both interested in and moved by the plight of all those poor people on the streets. Hugo wasn't the only writer at the time to turn his attention to the poor. A few years earlier, Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote the novel Poor Folk. Before that, English author Charles Dickens wrote Oliver Twist. Both works shed light on the lives of the poor and were hugely popular in their time. Hugo took a similar approach with Les Miserables. So he started it in 1845, and by 1846 he was really into it, and he was scribbling away. Um, and indeed, in his correspondence, you know, he sort of says every now and again, you know, I, I stayed up till midnight writing last night, which for Hugo was very late. He's an early riser. He always went to bed, or usually went to bed pretty early and got up at dawn. So being kept up to midnight by his new subject means he was really intensely caught up in it. Um, and then something extraordinary happened in February 1848. Hugo was in the middle of writing a scene in which the characters erect barricades in the streets. While he was writing this, he looked out the window to see barricades being assembled in the streets outside his own apartment. Revolution was breaking out. This became known as the February Revolution. Louis Napoleon was in the process of overthrowing the current government. Hugo just put his pen aside uh, from February the 22nd, I think, uh, 1848, he devoted himself to public life because, after all, he was a member of the legislature and he was a man of duty, so it was his duty to participate. So he, he went into politics. Um, he was very active. Uh, he made lots of speeches um, um, and he didn't write much or certainly didn't write any fiction uh, all through that period, which ended disastrously for him uh, when basically the autocrat took over completely and Hugo had to flee. So when he arrived years later on Guernsey in 1855 with his great trunks of manuscripts, there was in it uh, a nov an unfinished novel about 200,000 words long, I mean, already quite a chunky novel, um, called, well, it was still sort of called Les Misères, but he'd already begun to change his mind that actually it ought to be called Les Misérables, shifting the focus from the, uh, the abstract moral of uh, wretchedness to the people, the Misérables, uh, which means both poor folk, uh, I mean, in sense of without money, but also poor folk in the sense of pitiable, uh, those we should pity. And he kept telling himself whether he was writing poems or scraps or indulging in turning tables, which he did, and talking to 
the spirits of the past age. He kept reminding him, they kept reminding him, Grand homme, great man, they said, finish your novel. Uh, uh, but it wasn't until 1859 that finally he summoned up the energy and the resolve to do just that. And so Les Miserables, in the form that we know it now, was written between the summer of 1859 and the uh, uh, first weeks of 1862. I think that that double composition of the book is part of what makes it so fascinating. Um, it, it, it is both um, a story told by a man in his prime and a reflection on that story by somebody who feels himself to be an old man. Let's let's move now to impact. Um, how did this affect the hearts and minds of its first readers in Paris and across Europe? For me, anyway, the main import of Les Miserables is to say that the lowest may also become the highest. That's the real message that... Uh, uh, you know, men are created equal and have equal potential for goodness and for evil. Valjean is our great hero of not so much of goodness, but of the possibility of transformation, of self-transformation, of growth. And a um, huge, boldicized reason for rejecting what were actually quite widely shared, commonsensical 19th century views that, you know, the poor are not like us. Um, Hugo is saying the poor are like you, and you are like the... You too can, etc. So that, um, that message is implicit from beginning to end of Les Miserables. That's... Uh, that's why it is called Les Miserables in the plural. Uh, it's not un misérable, but Les Miserables is a collective thing of wretched people. And it says, wretched people are okay. Yes, sure, you know, uh, all right. But in 1862, that is still a positively revolutionary position to adopt. Um, I think it's had unending impact uh, on the world. Uh, of course, Hugo is not the first person to make this claim. I mean, it goes back to the Sermon on the Mount, um, and, and um, many philosophers and men of goodwill have made the point. But Les Miserables makes the point in a way in which it really can be absorbed as a whole explanation of life uh, on a vast scale. You know, I, I, one of my favorite ways of tracking the change in, in attitudes about the poor is instead of calling the poor, you know, in America, um, unfortunate or misfortunate, we say, we use the words like loser, right? Losers and winners. How did the, you know, the people that Hugo was trying to um, impact actually think about the poor? Was it, how were they different? And did it relate to a, you know, the revolutionary effort of trying to expand power and dignity to more people? 19th century France, like 19th century England, was afraid of the poor. And they were right to be afraid in a limited sense. Um, you know, they kept on doing dreadful things like having revolutions and chopping people's heads off. Uh, France had a particularly dramatic history of the 
uh, murderous potential of the mob. Um, and the mob is made of poor people. So uh, standard middle-class bourgeois view of the poor, let's say in 1862, but it'd be true in 1832 and 1892 as well, is that you, know, you don't mix with them. You know, they're full of diseases uh, and they're full of resentment and anger. So Hugo's novel knocks that view on its head through the personality and character and statements of Javert, the policeman. Javert is an extreme example. Well, perhaps not extreme, but he is a, a, a fully formed example of you know, binary thinking, that there are two kinds of people. And for Javert, there, are, there is the establishment, the bourgeoisie, whose servant he is, and there are the others. And it's his job to keep the others where they are. And by imagining this actually rather sad policeman who is himself the child of convicts and who sees no place for himself either amongst the bourgeoisie or amongst criminal classes, um, you know, he becomes a prison warder since he grew, it's the media he grew up in, and becomes a servant of the state, which is, it's his salvation. Um, and you see, he's not evil in himself, Javert. He is a dutiful man. He believes what he believes, and he serves uh, an ideology that is not so very distant from common or garden common sense, except he exacerbates it. And that's Hugo's genius, really, is to show you how wrong it is and how you get to the wrong answer, how you hit a brick wall and always lose if you divide society into um, us and them, that that is no way forward. And so did this text spur some social reform, uh, laws changing, practices, values? When the hated regime of Louis-Napoleon collapsed in 1870, and after some real horrible struggles in Paris, a new republic emerged, the Third Republic. Uh, Hugo then returned to France. I mean, he, he wouldn't return to France while Louis Napoleon was still in charge. But once he'd gone, Hugo was back in Paris. And he was like a national monument, you know, an old man with a big white beard. Um, he did a pretty good impersonation of God uh, in, in the Third Republic. Um, uh, and uh, it was a reforming republic, at least in its early years. It was a reforming bourgeois republic. And one of its signal achievements was to introduce universal, non-religious, lay uh, and obligatory uh, primary education throughout France. That's the, the famous laws of 1877. And you could say that Les Miserables uh, was one of the reasons why that just seemed so obvious as a reforming move. Um, it's about the only thing that is quite explicitly promoted in the later parts of the novel, that education is what you should give the poor. How could we track the values, the perspective, the framing of Les Miserables to maybe the greater liberalism of, of France and then later the EU? In the great barricade scene, um, the leader of the uh, students... Uh, student group that are fermenting this uprising. It's a 
beautiful young man called Enjolras. Uh, he gives a wonderful speech, but when they know that they're on their own and that actually the revolution is not going to work uh, and that they're going to be slaughtered, he gives kind of pep talk uh, blueprint for the future, uh, which is spectacularly persuasive, uh, but also lyrically overwrought um, encomium. Uh, and Enjolras looks forward explicitly to the days when nations will no longer exist, when Europe will be a single unit governed by a committee of the intelligent and where the different nations of the world will meet in some Olympian palace to ensure peace and harmony. I mean, that's the UN and the EU are almost adumbrated directly. Um, now, you could say Enjolras does not speak for Hugo. Hugo is using Enjolras to let the revolutionaries, as it were, have their moment of glory before they go bang, 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 and that's the end of them. So you can take it either way that Enjolras's um, lyrical uh, the blueprint for the future is a piece of nonsense, and that's why you know revolutionaries need to be shot. And I'm sure many bourgeois readers took it that way, you know, that he comes up with such outrageous and absurd things that it's no wonder the revolutions failed. On the other hand, I think most of us reading it now think, well, how amazing that Victor Hugo could put his own self in the mind of a kind of utopian idealist and tell us that there is a utopia that looks actually structurally quite like what we have built since then. And I think it's no coincidence. I mean, every, every one of the people who built the EU had read Les Miserables as kids. <laughs> and so it's present there in, as it were, often unspoken, but it's present there in all the conversations about creating a, um, a route, this remarkable political body that is neither a state nor a treaty, but something else besides. When Les Miserables was first published in 1862, it was so popular that in the same year, it was translated into Portuguese, Greek, and Italian. The Italian publisher, or the publisher of the Italian translation, before it was finished, wrote to Hugo and said, you know, there's, there's stuff in this novel that's really all about France, and do you mind if I leave some of it out for the Italian audience? And he got a fabulous reply from Hugo, uh, a letter that is often printed as an appendix to the novel, in which he says, uh, you know, now, now hang on there, um... Uh, the novel may be about France, but I wrote it for everybody, um, uh, for Italians and Irishmen. Um, and he said, um, uh, it's it's not really a French novel, and that the older he gets, the more he feels that he um, is writing as a European. And more than that, he said, just as a human being. That, 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 um, so there is a kind of... Um, uh, thrash up in that letter about the future of literature, at least, as becoming a global thing um, uh, without any particular attachment to a place, a country, or uh, a political entity. Um, it's a remarkable letter, and I do recommend everybody should read it. Um, and, it's, you know, um, wherever there are people who are suffering, wherever there are people in misery, um, you know, my novel... Uh, 
knocks on the door and says, I have come for you. Victor Hugo used the backdrop of 19th century France to illustrate a global issue. He showed how unjust class systems often leave many good people with nothing but bad options. By giving readers a glimpse into the lives of the poor and humanizing characters in the lowest class of society, Hugo showed how similar we are to one another and how necessary it is for society to support all of its citizens, not just the lucky few. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.